Our Father, the scripture tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from you. And you're good to all. Uh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. We, uh, we thank you for your gifts. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for your care. We have certain things that we just assume will be in our lives, things we count on without even really thinking about them. Uh, th those all come from your hand. Uh, we thank you for your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. The scripture says your faithfulness reaches to the skies. And the fact of the matter is we uh, are very human. We are very flawed. We tend to be uh, up and down. <clears throat> we have our times where we're enthusiastic and we have our other times when we're fighting off depression. But you never change, and you're always there, and you are consistent. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. What a great Father you are to us through Christ. We are here tonight to study your word. There are a lot of needs here. We don't know about most of them, but there are significant needs and there are significant problems and there are sicknesses and there are family issues and there are children away from you and addictions and we're just sinners, Lord. We're just sinners. So we need you. And we get our hearts broken with these things because they involve people we love. And we see lives going the wrong direction. And we see relationships broken. And we don't want Satan to get a foothold in these situations. Often he does. It's easy to become discouraged and even find ourselves in despair. But you are faithful. You are faithful. And you are a God who has made promises, and you keep your promises, and you fulfill them at the right time. So, we ask for encouragement as we look into the scriptures tonight. We ask that you'll give us a perspective. Some of us need to be refreshed. Some of us need to be reminded. Some of us need... Um, a kick in the rear end. We all need something, and you know what it is. So we ask you by your Holy Spirit to give it to us tonight and to supply what we need out of your faithfulness to us. And we pray these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening, we are commencing a new study in Psalms. We're going to call it trekking through the Psalms. It's sort of like a hike, only a, a trek. You can actually look this up online. There, there is a, there's a distinction. There are distinctions between uh, hiking and trekking. Trekking tends to be longer. It tends to be 
in a little bit more difficult uh, environment, often uh, mountains, sometimes through valleys, uh, re requires uh, courage at times and um, um, it, it requires a uh, stick-to-itiveness, if that's a word. Uh, it, it, uh, oftentimes on a trek, you find yourself in tough situations, in hard situations, in challenging situations. Uh, that's, that's the Christian life. The Christian life is not an easy life. It is the best life, but it is not an easy life. Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not some, not few, many. Uh, in the Christian life, rarely are you going downstream. You're usually going upstream against a heavy current. The thing about the Psalms is that the Psalms, half of them were written by David. Other men God used to pen the Psalms but the Psalms, it's interesting about the Psalms. When people find themselves in difficult circumstances, in hard situations, uh, in, in puzzling circumstances that make no sense, people turn to the Psalms. Why is that? Uh, the Psalms is sort of like a trail. It's, it's a path. It is, um, it's true that the second best-selling book of all time is Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. It is an allegory. It is a story about a man named Christian who is on his way to the eternal city. He's on a journey. He's on a trail. And... Uh, the, the metaphors in Pilgrim's Progress are ring true to this day. They're, they're out of Scripture. Absolutely out of Scripture. Um, oftentimes, the reason we turn to certain psalms is that we find comfort when we're hurting. We find uh, encouragement when we're discouraged. Because the fact of the matter is, if you, if you take the Psalms that David wrote, he wrote approximately half of them, David was on a trail. Uh, in, in Psalm 16, he says, you will make known to me the path of life, speaking to the Lord. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. Uh, the man who walks with the Lord is a blessed man. That doesn't mean he's pain-free because he's not pain-free. Many challenges, there'll be suffering, there'll be difficulty, uh, there'll be disappointment. David hit all of those in his life. He, uh, he experienced what uh, the great theologian of the 60s, Jim McKay, uh, called, and some of you have no idea who Jim McKay was. He was a sportscaster, not a theologian, but there was a series on Saturday afternoons called Why World of Sports. And Jim McKay would say, spending the globe to bring you the constant variety of human competition, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. And we've talked about this before. The, uh, and they kept cutting to different sports events, and you never knew what you were going to get on Why World of Sports. This was, this was before ESPN. 
this was, um, and you know, to come up with 52 shows a year. And it was different. I mean, there wasn't, there, there wasn't 24-hour news. There wasn't, 20, but they had to come up with different sporting events. So they did all kinds of things. They often did barrel jumping in Canada where a bunch of lumberjacks on a Saturday afternoon would drink scotch and go out and see how, much, how, many, how many barrels, how many kegs they could jump over. And they actually put this on national television. Uh, they did polo. They did, it was crazy all the stuff they did. The most famous shot they ever did was the drunken Yugoslavian barber on the ski jump. <laughs> and when Jim McKay said, the thrill of victory, and then they cut to the agony of defeat. Here's this drunken Yugoslavian barber. I, I looked it up. Uh-huh. He was on the Yugoslavian Olympic team, and he was a barber. And he'd had about 12 Heinekens for breakfast. <laughs> And he's up on this ski jump, and he gets in his squat, ready to come down, and he can't even balance in his squat. And as he's coming down, he only goes 20 or 30 feet, falls off the ski jump, hits his head, bounces, goes all the way down the mountainside. That is, and then the guy, the thrill of victory, is some guy winning the 100 meters. But this is the agony of defeat. The Christian life is often like that drunken Yugoslavian <laughs> falling down the mountain. You just get hammered. And when you get hammered like that, it's very common to turn to the Psalms. Why do we turn to the Psalms? Because those who have gone before us, like David, they recorded their walk with the Lord, they recorded their trail with the Lord, they recorded their experiences with the Lord. And when they hit bottom, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wrote about it. It wasn't always the thrill of victory. More than often, it was the agony of defeat. Uh, Psalm 42, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you cast down within me? Uh, Psalm 73, Psalm 77. Now, the Lord is good. But there is a reason we go through this tough trail called the Christian life. We go through it because adversity builds character. Adversity builds spiritual muscle. It gets us ready for what God has for us next. But the Psalms are very human. They're very human. And you can find yourself in what you're dealing with in the Psalms. And you can find God's truth for when you are in a tough place and you can find his promises and you can find verses that you can hang on to to get you through when nothing else will get you through. So that's one reason we're going to study the Psalms. So tonight, we're going to kick off with, I thought we'd kick off with Psalm 1. It just seemed to be the right thing to do. Now, you may be aware that there's 150 psalms. So are we going to go straight through and do all 150 psalms? Yes, we're going to do them all tonight. <laughs> we're going to cover the whole book of psalms tonight. Actually, what we're going to do, we're, we're, we're going to take them in chunks. 
So depending on how we do this semester, I'm going to try and do a psalm each evening that we meet. So we might get to Psalm 19, we might get to 18, we might get to 20, we might need to take one of them and break them up a little bit, but we're going to be in that range. And then we'll see about next fall what we're going to do. I may do something different and then come back to it in the spring. I don't know. But the, the Psalms have so much for us that they are, the, the Psalms and certain verses in the Psalms become your companions. They become your, your friends. They become your encouragers. Um, a lot of the core verses in my life are out of the Psalms. And I learned them in the darkest days of my life. Uh, they sustain you when nothing else will sustain you. Because they speak, speak exactly to your experience. So tonight, as we begin with Psalm 1, Psalm 1 basically is an introduction to all of the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 1 is kind of an overview. It's a bird's eye view. It's a helicopter view uh, over, over all 150 psalms, and it introduces all the psalms. It, it is a very, um, in some ways, it is very simple, and it is very to the point, because what Psalm 1 teaches is that there are two kinds of men. Two kinds of men. That's it. There is the godly man and there is the ungodly man. Often the scripture summarizes things in twos. In Psalm 1, you have two kinds of men. Let me show that to you as we read Psalm 1. It doesn't take long to read it. doesn't take long to get through Psalm 1. But it's jammed, packed. And let me go ahead and give you the outline that we're going to use tonight, and then we'll come back to it. But three points in this outline. Number one, we see a snapshot of the godly man in verses 1 through 3. A snapshot of the godly man in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, we see a snapshot of the ungodly man in verse 4. And then thirdly, we see the end of the road for the ungodly and the godly in verses 5 and 6. Uh, we, we are all on a path. We're all going somewhere. We have a lifespan. We are born with a certain amount of days assigned to us and a certain amount of breaths, and that's it. Um, as a background to Psalm 1, uh, because we're all on this journey called life, I would, uh, and I want to give you a little background even before we read Psalm 1. I was going to do this later, but it, we got to encapsulate this, if you will. So, Psalm 31, turn over there real quick. So, in Psalm 31, verse 14 and 15, the psalmist says, But as for me, 
I trust in you, O net worth. It doesn't say that. It says, as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. Everybody, every man is trusting in something. I don't care who you are. Every man is trusting his life in something. It might be your net worth. It might be your gifts. It might be your friends. It might be, it could be a thousand different things. Uh, some men uh, trust their lives to the fact that they believe there is no God. They're, they are trusting in that fact. They think it's a fact. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Watch this. My times are in your hands. What, what times are these? Your times. All your times. Your times on the earth. Uh, it, it even would encompass... So it would be conception until death. It would be actually prior to conception. Because if you look at Psalm 139, verse 16, David says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. That's before you would show up on ultrasound. Many of us, when we were born, there was no ultrasound, there was no sound, there was no radio. I think most of us, there was radio. Uh, but we got all this technology today. You can see a child in the womb on ultrasound. See the little fingers, little head, all that. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. What he's saying is that God knew him when he was a sperm and an egg. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in thy book, they were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. That's a staggering statement. Uh, you know, that's just another way of saying, my times are in your hand. So God has a plan for each man. You got X amount of days, you got X amount of breaths, and you have no idea how many you're getting. And then at the end, it is appointed for a man once to die, and then comes judgment, Hebrews 9. So with that in mind, this, these guys are on a trail. Let's read Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. How blessed, how happy, how contented, how peaceful in his heart. Uh, literally, when it says how blessed is the man, it has the sense of happiness, of fulfillment, of contentment, of a joy of a peace which passes all understanding. He, he is telling us something, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but I wanted to point out what that word blessed has, has in it. This is the best possible formula for life. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, or the Lord literally approves of the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Two kinds of men, two kinds of men. 
not only in scripture do you see two kinds of men, but Jesus said there are two different paths in Matthew chapter seven. So you got two different kinds of men and you got two different paths. Each man chooses his path. Uh, you might flip over to Matthew chapter seven. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said this. Notice the two paths, the two gates. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. But the gate is small and the way, what is a way? It's a path. It's a trail, it's a dirt road, it's a way. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. So there's two trails, there's two paths, there's two choices as how one will walk through life. Most of, uh, let's put it this way. We've, if you've been through high school, you've experienced peer pressure. Or middle school, you've experienced peer pressure. But, and even in college. But peer pressure doesn't go away when you get into your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s. Uh, you've always got peer pressure. And the fact of the matter is, is that most of your peers are on the wrong path, going the wrong direction, to the wrong end. That's life. I read where someone interviewed a lady that was 104 years old. And they asked her, what is unique about being 104? And she said, no peer pressure. <laughs> it was very insightful, a very sharp lady. Not only are there two kinds of men and two different paths, but there are two different foundations. That's also in Matthew 7. Verse 24, Jesus said, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, acts on them, applies them, utilizes them. Uh, James said, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. The, the purpose is to hear the word of God and apply it. So Jesus here says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Ah, now we're talking foundations. He built his house on the rock. That's a good way to build a foundation. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. It had been built on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, does not do them, rejects them, ignores them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. That's a lousy foundation to build on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So, two men in Psalm 1 You've got two paths, Jesus said in Matthew 7, and he also said in Matthew 7, there are two foundations. This concerns a man's life. 
from the womb to the tomb. This, this is life stuff. This is critical stuff. This is about your, your life and the meaning in your life and the legacy of your life and where you will spend eternity in life. That's what Psalm 1 is about. Um, Derek Kidner is an excellent Old Testament scholar, and he said this about Psalm 1. He said, the mind is the key to the man, because whatever shapes a man's thinking shapes his life. Whatever shapes a man's thinking shapes his life. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks within himself, so he shall be. The uh, thing that fuels your life and the thing that fuels the direction of your life is what you put into your mind. So with that in mind, let's go to our outline. So our first point is, there is a snapshot of the godly man given in Psalm 1. And he begins with a negative. The first thing he notes in the snapshot of the godly man is that the godly man is known by what he rejects. He's known by what he rejects, really, in his thinking. That's in verse 1. Note it carefully. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Um, that, uh, that's, that speaks of a digression. Ralphdale Davis is an excellent Old Testament commentator. And he says this about verse 1. Um, he says, the righteous man is described by what he shuns. Uh, the blessed man, the happy man, is the man who is enjoying God's blessing. And he is a man who is separated from certain things. A man who is not neutral in life, but has a bias against evil in all of its forms. The three clauses are meant to say that the righteous man rejects the totality of evil. The counsel of the wicked has to do with a way of thinking, with forming plans, with a mindset and an outlet. So we, we do have our planning. We do, you know, 90-day plans. We do long-term plans. We do all these plans. If, um, if, you're, if you're smart, you, you've got advisors. You have people that you speak with who have a degree of expertise in certain areas of life. Um, and you seek their counsel. And this applies to all kinds of different levels of life. 
the fact of the matter is, this life is not all there is. And when you believe what Jesus said, we, we live in a secular world, and the sec, secular world, a secular educational system, a secular government, the, the basis of all of this is that this is the only world that there is. But Jesus said there is another world. So as you live this life, it is wise and it is smart. If indeed there is another world, it is very wise to prepare for life for the next world. But if you think this is all there is, and it turns out there is something else, you're gonna be in trouble. So who you listen to on issues of, real issues of life, issues of the soul, issues of the heart. Who are your counselors? Who has gravitas in your life? Who do you respect? If they are men who do not have a heart for God, you're in trouble. Doesn't mean we cut ourselves off from people and it doesn't mean we don't interact and we're not aware of them and all that. It just means who is influencing you? Who are your teachers? Who are your mentors? He goes on, as you plan your life and the steps of life and as you order your life. The counsel of the wicked has to do with a way of thinking and forming plans and a mindset and outlook. The way of sinners suggests their behavior, their actions, and their practices. The seat of scoffers implies a kind of belonging where one settles most comfortably, perhaps with the scathing unbelief that wants no truck with godliness and faithfulness. If we look at these clauses as what is congenial to the wicked man, then we see the cues he follows, counsel, the direction he takes away, that he takes, which is the way, and the company he enjoys, seat. How happy is the man who does not do that? Uh, the godly man is countercultural. The godly man is going upstream. The godly man is going against the current. What did Jesus say? Broad is the road that leads to destruction. But narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. The Christian view is, you may have noticed this, is not the, is not the popular view. You'll be mocked, you'll be scorned, you'll be ridiculed. Um, this is speaking of, if you will, in our day and age, uh, the intelligentsia, the elite, the uh, academic world, Psalm 14 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I, I think the case could be made that in universities around the country, where we are right now, probably the majority of tenured professors are atheists. And they are supposed to be the wise ones that we listen to. Yet God says they're fools. So who are your counselors? Who do you listen to? Who do you take your cues from as you live your life and make decisions about life and where you're going in life? 
C.H. Spurgeon did a lot of writing on the Psalms, a massive amount of work on the Psalms. And his insights are always brilliant. He, uh, he takes these three phrases. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And he says this. When people are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual, but after that, they become habituated to evil, and they stand in the way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments, and if let alone, they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others, and thus they sit in the seat of the scornful, They have taken their degrees in vice and are true doctors of damnation. I like that. They are doctors of damnation. And he goes on and says they are installed and he's using the the academic ladder. Uh, He's saying they're tenured in evil is what he's saying. And you don't listen to them. You're perhaps aware of them, but they're not your primary influence. How blessed is the man who doesn't take his cues from those who are opposed to the living God. That's what he's saying. So as a believer, you have to be countercultural. You want to be relevant. Actually, you want to be relevant. How did I say, where, where did that come from? <laughs> You want to be relevant, but you want to be biblical. This is always a battle. You want to be kind, but you want to be truthful. I, 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 there is a trend I see among Christian people, and I hear this from time to time, that the greatest virtue, the greatest trait that anyone can do as a Christian is to be kind. We're to always be kind. The problem with that is Proverbs says we are to wrap truth and kindness around our neck. You cannot always be kind. If all you do is dispense kindness, you're actually going to hurt people. Because what is needed is a balance of truth and kindness. We are to speak the truth in love. So the idea that we're never to stir up the waters, the idea that we're never to rock the boat, that we're just to be loving and kind goes contrary to what we're supposed to do as believers. We are to be counter-cultural and speak the truth of Christ. And that's not real popular. John 14, 6. You talk about a narrow gate. Matthew 7. Here's a narrow gate. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what you call narrow. That's what you call exclusive. That's what you call not open. But it's true. So we speak that truth in love. We wrap truth and kindness around our neck.
So this godly man is known by what he rejects. Interestingly enough in scripture, and what we're talking about here, the counsel of the wicked, standing in the path of sinners, the seat of scoffers, the, the academic world, and it's not just the academic world, it can be your family. Those who are opposed to the truth of God or those who are compromising the truth of God. Someone's got to stay the course. Someone's got to stand for the truth. Someone's got to stand for Christ. Because lives cannot be changed without the truth of Christ. What did Jesus say in John 8, 31? It'll come. In faith, I believe it'll come. Yes, here it is. It's always exciting getting older, isn't it? It's an adventure. It's not for the faint of heart. Oh, no. John 8, 31. If you continue in my kindness, as nobody said, if you continue in my love, it's not what he said. Those are all factored in. If you continue in my word, then, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. People cannot be set free with a fire hydrant of kindness. People need kindness, but they need it in the right amounts, and they need it balanced with truth. Because kindness can't save souls. Truth saves souls. The gospel saves souls. The gospel opens eyes. The truth opens eyes. Truth is critical. And we're living in a day where biblical truth is, uh, is uh, not appreciated and it's under attack, even in churches. You know that. Not only are there two kinds of men and two different paths and two different foundations, but there's two kinds of wisdom. There is the wisdom of men and there is the wisdom of God. What is being addressed in verse one is the wisdom of men. And it can be very impressive, written by those who have great pedigrees and academic degrees and those who have been revered through history. But here's what God says about the wisdom of men. Because you see, what we need is the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of men. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Take a look over there. Uh, the, uh, the wisdom of men is, is extremely popular. Extremely popular. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The gospel of Christ is foolishness to the world, in other words. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Ah, but to those who have been called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's two kinds of wisdom. You don't want Psalm 1-1 wisdom. That's the wisdom of men. You want the wisdom of Almighty God. Uh, Note chapter 2, verse 14. Here's the problem. We all start out as ungodly men. That's our default position. That's how we're born. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're born with sin natures. That's why you never have to teach your child. You never, never have to t- teach your son or your little girl. You never have to sit down and teach them how to lie. They know how to lie. They're little liars. They're cute and they're wicked. <laughs> they are. And it's been passed on through the generations, through your wife's family. And through yours. Comes from both sides. <coughs> We're all messed up. We're all sinners. And it's in their hearts. And they'll pass it on to their kids and they'll pass it on to their kids. And because we're sinners, we're blind. And we're spiritually dead, Ephesians 2 says. So 2.14 of 1 Corinthians says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. A man who is not saved, a man who is not regenerated by the Holy Spirit, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually understood. He's blind. He's dead. He can't see the truth of Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, is that the power of the Holy Spirit opens our eyes so that we hear the gospel, we comprehend the gospel, as God opened the tomb and called Lazarus to come out, the gospel is preached, he calls some to come out. He opens their eyes, they comprehend the truth, they understand the gospel, they say, Jesus I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I ask you to receive me, to accept me, to come into my life, to be my savior. And we're born again. And now we can begin to discern the things of God because the spirit of God lives in us and the spirit of Christ lives within us. And now we begin the journey of the Christian life. And now we're going to begin to seek the wisdom of God. Let me show you one other thing in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, This is why you've got to be in the scriptures. This is why we're doing Bible study. This is why we go to Bible preaching churches. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Even now you are not able. They're not growing in the word. They're, they're born again, but they're not nurturing themselves. They are not fueling their bodies for the Christian life. They're not fueling their bodies with the word of God. Uh, they, are, uh, they are anorexic spiritually. 
Uh, anorexia is a terrible, terrible thing, an eating disorder that happens primarily to young women. And they look in the mirror and they think they're ugly and obese and they're not. And for some reason, emotionally inside of them, they just quit eating food and they begin to starve themselves to death. It's a horrible thing, a horrible thing. And, and they literally starve themselves. They will not take nutrition. This is what is a Christian who does not feed on the word of God. You cannot grow. You, you cannot grow. You cannot mature. You, you cannot be a, become a mature man. You cannot become the husband or father you, you should be. This is why the enemy is always trying to keep us out of the scriptures. The other problem is, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, is to hear the scriptures and not apply them. Uh, it's what James said. Don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers. There's another eating disorder called bulimia. And the person who is a bulimic, they'll eat the food at the dinner table with everybody else but then after dinner, they'll go excuse themselves and they vomit up the food. That's as dangerous as anorexia because their body doesn't have, can never digest the food and the nutrients are never applied to the body. Both are very dangerous and they're dangerous spiritually. The, the church of Corinth, he was, he was rebuking them because they weren't feeding on scripture. Go down to verse 18. And when you're not feeding on scripture, you're still going through life and you're still not making, and you're still making decisions, but you're not making good decisions because, because you're not in scripture, you're not making your decisions as you go through the path of life based on what God says, because you're not, you're not listening to what God says. So what you are doing is that you're living off the wisdom of men. Proverbs 16, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. You're living off a lousy wisdom. Verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 3, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, watch this, that they are useless. Useless. In terms of spiritual life, instead of making decisions that please the Lord. So you see, what we put into our minds is absolutely critical. Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Scripture, the word of God, as I put into my, into my mind and I apply it and pray over it, it changes my life. It changes me. It changes those I come in contact with. Therefore, it changes marriages and it changes uh, relationship with kids and it, cha it just changes everything. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. It saves it saves people. That's what it does. <laughs> it's God's word. This is why the enemy will do anything he can do to keep us out of the scriptures. You get up in the morning, you go to get your Bible, get your coffee, and something happens. Or you get a text, or you this or that. Or, uh, 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 uh. He just doesn't want you in the word. 
Count on it. Just count on it. There's a second thing about this snapshot of the godly man. Yes, he's known by what he rejects in his thinking, but he is also known, secondly, by what he delights in. Let's go back to Psalm 1. What he delights in is in the law of the Lord. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Um, That could be one aspect of the law, or it could be the whole teaching of Scripture. His delight is in, and I take it as the whole teaching of Scripture. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law. There are different synonyms that are used for the word of God. Uh, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. It's all about the Word of God. It's all about the benefits of the Word of God. Uh, it'll, use, it'll talk about the law. It'll talk about precepts. It'll talk about statutes. It'll talk about commandments. It'll talk about, it's got all these different terms for the Word of God. They're all beneficial. Uh, he says in verse 2, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So you just walk around all day thinking about Scripture? No, you've got a job to do. You've got work to do. Well, what does that mean? Uh, there's an idea to the word meditate. Uh, there's an idea of, of mumbling. That um, You ever talk to yourself? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And somebody somewhere has got it on tape. It's all on tape now. It's all being recorded. I just wanted to encourage you. But we mutter. Uh, there's um, Walt Garrison did a commercial years ago for a um, smokeless tobacco and he's, his big phrase was you just take a pinch between your cheek and gum for true tobacco pleasure and uh, a lot of guys started doing that just a pinch between your cheek and gum. Um, and you just kind of, it's just kind of back there. You don't focus on it. You don't concentrate on it. You just, it's just back there. And you just kind of, you chew, and then every once in a while you spit. And you chew, and every once in a while you spit. It's a, it's a wonderful habit. Wives love this. Um, anyway, that's kind of what biblical meditation is. It's not that we're supposed to be in Bible study all day long. You've got work to do. You've got relationships. You've got stuff on your list. But it's sort of like you take um, Psalm 119 in the opening verses. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. The heart is the mind. So we'll take scripture and we'll put it in our minds. Um, And you shall love the Lord, Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, in your mind. And you shall teach them diligently to your children as you rise up and as you sit down, as you walk by the way. As you go through the life, you've got the word of God in your mind. You've got certain core verses and you'll memorize a verse and it'll make, if a verse touches you, memorize it. 
So I can't memorize scripture. Look, you could memorize Beatles song. You can, you can do, you know. I just three post-it notes. I'm old school. Three post-it notes. If there's a verse you want to memorize, write it out on three post-it notes. Put one on the dash of your car. Put one on your desk at work or your workbench. And put one on the mirror where you, you know, in the bathroom when you shave. Just put it on there. Don't try to memorize it, but a week later you'll know the verse. You'll know it. And that's just a pinch between your cheek and gum. And as you go through life, and then you start accumulating those different pinches. And all of a sudden you look like a ball player that makes $180 million a year. And you just got a chaw. But you're walking through life and you draw on that. Uh, to meditate is to ponder, is to chew. It's like a cow chewing the cud. And as you go through life and you've got decisions you've got to make like that or like that, you've got a grid of God's word. That's God's wisdom. <clears throat> and if you get in a situation where you don't have wisdom, James 1 said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously. If you need it, he'll give it to you. This is real life stuff, guys. So, a man who lives like that, who wants to know the word and put the word in his life, there's going to be a benefit that comes into his life. And the benefit is this. Verse 3. He will be like a tree, firmly planted, by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Um, I have used this, I've told this story before, but we've been to England several times, and just west of Oxford is an area called the Cotswolds. And all of those um, British, um, Downton Abbey, all those old British shows, you know, about life in the Victorian age, they're filmed in the Cotswolds. Because uh, it's amazing how they preserved everything. And those old estates are there, and the, the, the shepherd's cottages, and the old walls, and all of that. Everywhere you look, it's a postcard, as someone said. Um, some friends told us about a village called Bibbury. And they had stayed there, and so we stayed there a couple of nights. And one of the poets of England called it the most picturesque village in England. <clears throat> There's a spring-fed river that runs in front of the Swan Hotel, which has been there since the 1600s. Uh, spring-fed river. Uh, and you can follow it through the cottages that the... Um, the wool uh, growers and shepherds lived in uh, when wool was king in England in the 1700s and even 1800s. And you follow that river and just walk along. I mean, it's so picturesque. And then you come around to that church that I want to say <clears throat> was built in the 12th century, a Norman church. I didn't have time to check it today. But I know that, that, and it might even be earlier than that, and they still have services in that church. And it's right behind the Bibbury Castle. And you walk around, and that river goes around, and you come around to the front of that castle, 
and there's just this landscape that is spectacular and massive with these huge English black oak trees. And when Mary and I were walking that path and we came around and saw those massive oak trees, and I'm talking massive, they're right next to this spring-fed river, the river Colne, C-O-L-N. And I'm looking at that oak tree. And see, the thing about a massive, huge old oak tree is that the root system is bigger than what you see on the crown. What's that all about? I looked at Mary and I said, that's Psalm 1. Uh, two things about that. Number one, it was, it was breathtakingly beautiful. A tree like that is beautiful. And a tree like that has incredible strength. Why? Because of the root system. The storms that thing has withstood for four, five, six hundred years is incredible. But it's all about the roots going down deep. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. It's a fruitful life. You walk with the Lord and you confess your sin and you put his word in your life and you ask for wisdom and try to apply the word to your situation as you go through life and to your relationships and to all of this. And you know what? You're going to have a blessed life and you're going to have a prosperous life. Now, does this mean that you won't have difficulty? Does this mean that you won't have hardship? Does this mean you won't have affliction? It doesn't mean that. There is unfortunately named a theology called prosperity theology, which is a false theology that teaches that you, God always wants you healthy and he always wants you well and he always wants your son to be the starting quarterback and your daughter to be the homecoming queen and, you know, he wants you pain-free. That's not in the scriptures. So, but you say, wait a minute, it just says here and whatever he does, he prospers. Yeah. What, what does that mean? Let me go back to Spurgeon. Spurgeon was, uh, 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 Spurgeon lived in the 1800s and he was a little late for the Puritans but he was a Puritan. They called the Puritans, J.I. Packer called the Puritan pastors, he called them physicians of the soul. They were doctors of the soul. And that's what uh, Spurgeon is. So in regard to this, Spurgeon's got a great line. What does it mean to be prosperous? He says in regard to this passage, it is not an outward prosperity which the Christian most desires and values, but it is soul prosperity, which he longs for. Now, he's going to refer to a guy named Jehoshaphat, who was a good king, who at a certain point got some ships and sent them out on a business venture, and, and God stopped the ships, and they didn't go anywhere. Okay? He says, we often, like Jehoshaphat, make ships go to Tarshish for gold, but they are broken at easy on Geber. But even here, there is a true prospering, for it is often for the soul's health that we should be poor, bereaved, and persecuted. 
our worst things are often our best things. As there is a curse wrapped up in the wicked man's mercies, so there is a blessing concealed in the righteous man's crosses, losses, and sorrow. The trials of the saint are a divine husbandry by which he grows and brings forth abundant fruit. David said, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Good. Why? Uh, One of the old Puritans, Thomas Watson, said, God prospers by impoverishing. I don't like that. So where does that come from? Well, think about it. God prospers by impoverishing. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I've seen, I watch churches, I, I speak in a lot of churches, and I watch, there's a, a very popular chorus, and you'll see people smiling, he gives and takes away, he gives and takes away, he gives and takes away, blessed be his name. Uh, say hi to your neighbor. Hi, neighbor, how are you? All right, let's sing it again. He gives and takes. All right, do you know what you're singing? What are you smiling about? He gives and takes away. That's what Job said after he lost everything. He tore his clothes. He lost his kids in a natural disaster. Everything. He was wiped out totally. Everything was near and dear to him. He lost it. He tore his clothes. He worshiped. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he was a righteous man. He was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. But he was being tested. And then he's got boils from head to toe and his wife walks in and she says, just curse God and die. And he says, shall we accept prosperity from God and not adversity? God uses both. God uses both. And Job got through that testing. It was a horrific time in his life. And when he came out on the other end, everything that he lost, God gave back to him double after he had forgiven his friends. Um, You know what that's about right there? The story of Job? God prospers by impoverishing. Sometimes God will take things away because we can't handle them. Uh, We do that with our kids. If all you do is give to your kids, you're going to spoil them. There's a time to give to a kid, and sometimes we give them too much, and the thing you need to do is take it away because they're not ready for it. And when they show that they're responsible, then you can give it to them because now they can handle it. So we do, we do this, and we're pretty average parents. God's the perfect parent. God, God is concerned about our souls. Yeah, God is good to us, and he wants, we need to provide for our families and all that, and God supplies what we need, and he's so gracious but he's concerned about the soul. All right, last point, quickly. We've spent all of our time, a snapshot on the godly man. Um, Actually, the second point is a snapshot snapshot of the ungodly is in verse four, and it's very simple. It says this, the wicked are not so. That's it. All the things that are true of the man walking with the Lord, all of the benefits, 
all of the peace, all of the contentment, all of the joy, even in the midst of hard circumstances, which other Psalms cover, all of the goodness of God and the peace of God. Um, you know, one of the things about one of the things about those who in this life have everything, apparently, and, and have money beyond comprehension and the homes and the ranches and the lifestyle and this and the famous and all of this. And you know what the fact of the matter is? In their hearts, there's utter misery. Utter and absolute misery. Why, why do we read almost on a daily basis of someone who is at the very top taking their own life? There, there's no blessedness. There's no true happiness. There's no fulfillment. There's no contentment. There's no peace which passes understanding. It's empty. Because it, you cannot have that apart from Christ. It says the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. So when they would thresh wheat, the chaff, they would take that wheat and, you know, then they got the machines. But you talk to guys that have worked out in those wheat fields, the chaff is horrible stuff. The chaff is worthless. The chaff is the husk. Uh, the chaff, the, it's the encasement. And there, there's no value to it. What you want is the wheat. But you gotta, get, you gotta get rid of the chaff. And when you're getting rid of the chaff, you're out there and you're working and you're sweating and the chaff, it's in the air and it'll get on your arms and your legs and it scratches and it'll make you miserable and it can get infected and it's worthless. So what do they do with chaff? They burn it. Chaff is like the plastic on a CD case trying to get it off. It's just an irritant. That's the life of the man without the Lord. And thirdly, let's talk about the end of the road for both kinds of men. The end of the road, because the road comes to an end. Verse five, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Into verse six, but the way of the wicked will perish. But at the beginning of verse five, we see this. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, or literally the Lord approves of the way of the righteous. And why are we righteous? Because of our own good works? Absolutely not. Because of what Christ did for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works that any man should boast. So we're not boasting about this. We're just thankful. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. He saved us. He redeemed us. He has a purpose for your life, for the days that you have left. He has a purpose for my life, for the days that I have left. He has good works in mind. Not good works to be saved. We're saved by grace. But he's going to use us in our gifting, and he's going to use us in our sphere of influence. And he just will use us. He knows the way I take. 
He's got it planned. He's got it ordained. Our lives will count. And then we come to the end and we take our last breath. And then it gets real good. Really good. There's no better life than being in Christ. And if you don't know him, you call on him and say, Jesus, please come into my life. I believe you're the son of God. I want to know you. I believe you died in my place and took my sins upon you on the cross. And you can know him. And he'll come into your life and he'll lead you and he'll guide you and he'll walk with you. He'll be your shepherd. And he'll carry you to the end. We're blessed men. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for this encouragement. We're in a crazy world with crazy stuff going on. But the Lord is my shepherd. And he's got his eye upon us. And he is sustaining us and, and caring for us and providing for us, even in the midst of hardship. And that hardship even is part of his plan, of your plan. As hard as life gets and as bad as life gets, you'll bring good out of the very worst. You promised that to us. We count on it. And we're encouraged tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.